You're listening to the Soul Career Podcast, the podcast that brings you stories from people who've taken a risk to discover careers that fill them with purpose and make them come alive. I'm your host, Lysandra Ricketts. Now for the episode. With me today is Yasmina Zaidman. Yasmina is Chief Partnerships Officer at Acumen, a global nonprofit organization that changes the way the world tackles poverty by investing patient capital in early stage businesses whose products and service products and services are enabling the poor to transform their lives. I met Yasmina when I sat next to her at a dinner at a conference in October 2017. We hit it off immediately and she actually offered to mentor me as I had just received the offer to become the new CEO of the Branson Center. Since then, she's become my mentor and friend. We jump on Zoom calls and we meet up in New York whenever I'm there so we can get to meet up in person. Yasmina, welcome to the Soul Career Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. Very happy to have you on. You were my first official mentor, by the way. <laughs> so let's start with your current role as Chief Partnerships Officer at Acumen. What exactly does Acumen do and what exactly do you do? Great. Um, so I've, I've been at Acumen for almost 18 years. And, uh, and so the challenge is to keep it short because I can talk about Acumen all day long, which is probably a good sign. I'm still just extremely enthusiastic about the work that we do. Uh, so Acumen really has, was started to find innovative solutions to problems of poverty and also kind of challenge the status quo of how we think about poverty, how we think about low-income people, um, but also how we think about capital and the kind of leadership that's needed to solve big problems. So those are kind of the two big areas of what we do. We use capital very creatively to support businesses so that they can really maximize their impact. Um, and we want them to grow, we want them to be profitable, but we really see investing as a means and not an end. Uh, we don't wanna prove that you can make money solving problems of poverty. We wanna use capital creatively to solve these big problems. And then the other piece is leadership. Uh, it's a huge part of our work now uh, that wasn't there when we started, but we realized that building the right institutions so that the world works for everyone takes leadership at every level. Um, and so I think like you, we've always cared a lot about how do you develop people um, and whether they're starting a business or working in a big corporation or working in government, what are the leadership principles that can help us build institutions that really put people and the planet at the center of our solutions? rather than um, profit and and um, capitalism. Exactly. And I love this language of patient capital, which is very, it's a very well used um, phrase in the nonprofit world. But just explain what is patient capital? Why can't we all have patient capital? Why is <laughs> well, capital so impatient? <laughs> I think everybody needs patient capital. Um, so patient capital is interesting because it's often capital for very impatient change agents. So people who are really eager to, to change systems, but they wanna use capital to grow their business without compromising on building it in the right way. And so it's harder and it takes longer when you wanna serve harder to reach customers, when you wanna innovate a product so that people benefit that have been excluded. And so that's where the patience comes in. And it isn't just taking our time, it's also how do we structure the investment? What amount of capital do we provide at what stage of a business's growth? And then what do we do beyond investing? For us, patient capital is about accompaniment. It's saying, we're gonna invest in you, but also over time, we're gonna figure out how do we help you build your capabilities as an entrepreneur and a leader? How do we connect you into a network of others that can support you along the way? And so the patient capital model for us 
again, isn't profit maximizing. It's um, using capital to drive impact and honestly to help scale innovations into their right place. Some of our innovations end up partnering with government, right? And, and leveraging government support and others go a very commercial route. <clears throat> Sorry, so we're really excited to see the kinds of things that we support with patient capital able to leverage capital from more commercial sources that are maybe less patient, but we're there to de-risk them, to help them get to that stage and kind of graduate on to more traditional forms of capital. And we've seen, you know, we've invested about $132 million in 130 companies, but those companies have gone on to raise almost a billion dollars. Wow. So we're just excited to see that, you know, we have a relationship to traditional markets, but like you said, we want to change those traditional markets. We want them to think about how are they combining the goals <clears throat> of growing capital, growing value, but creating solutions that actually are good for the people on the planet, which we, we all need um, at the end of the day for a thriving economy and a thriving society. Exactly. So Yasmina, Acumen is actually an investor, but also a nonprofit organization. So that is kind of the definition of impact investment. So tell us a little bit about the impact investment space. Yeah, so the impact investing space is something that has been really evolving. Um, I remember when I was in graduate school, I was really interested in this idea of a spectrum of capital. Um, and it turned out that that was a concept that had already been uh, developed uh, by someone named Jed Emerson, who's a brilliant thinker who's helped catalyze the space. Um, and essentially the idea is that, you know, capital can be used along a whole spectrum for different objectives. And what is considered impact investing is quite broad. It could be what we do, which is where we use philanthropy to do a lot of our investing and then turn it into this patient long-term investment that goes into a company but can be recycled by us. It can also be kind of uh, all the way up to socially responsible investing, right? Commercial investing in publicly traded funds um, and public companies where you say, we want to avoid investing in something like oil and gas. So the term means many things now. But I think what's been helpful within the impact investing space is a real need for clarity and, and more clarity around measuring impact. So yeah. what is the impact that you're trying to create and how do you hold yourself accountable for that? Because it's easy to say, you know, we're going to be impactful or we're going to have a social impact. But if you're not specific about what it is, then I think it's harder to then make that claim. So we've been really pushing for that, that clarity around metrics and accountability. Um, and so when you hear things like, you know, there's no trade-off. There's no trade-off. You can actually invest with impact and outperform the market. Um, that's really true in many areas, but then you want to be clear, what is that impact? And there's some spaces where you can see that convergence of profitability and impact. Right. I think renewable energy is an area like that, mm -hmm. uh, but there's other areas where we don't see that same correlation, uh, reaching very difficult to serve customers uh, low-income people in developing economies or even in areas in developed economies that are underserved by markets, we actually see that in the beginning, you don't see those outsized returns. And there is often a need for subsidy somewhere in the model, um, which is, we think, you know, a highly valued role that philanthropists and governments can play so that you build sustainable business models, but recognize that they're not going to yield the same returns that a different kind of investment might. So it's having that sophistication when you think about impact and investing of what you're trying to achieve, both with the impact side and with the investing. What kind of returns do you need, depending on the kind of investors that you're working with? Um, but it's a really exciting space. And I think there's a ton of nuance now. And it's a space that needs, frankly, a lot of different kinds of skill sets. 
Yeah, and I love that you brought that up because that's exactly what we were trying to do at the Branson Center, which is why I think you offered to mentor me. Because in an emerging market like Jamaica, like the Caribbean, investing in small companies in and of itself is impact because we don't have that dynamism in our economy for small businesses to scale very quickly. So the first piece of capital that goes into the business is often more philanthropic, um, which is where the Branson Center came in and which is where Richard Branson came in originally. Um, and then we were able to, you were able to guide me as I tries to, try to raise money to invest in businesses and so on, which is a great segue into what you actually do at Acumen, which is Chief great. Partnerships Officer. Tell us about that. Um, so it's a role that I kind of um, created about eight years ago, and it came out of this realization that, um, you know, for me early in my career, I had worked in corporate sustainability, and it was a really interesting space. It was in the, you know, kind of late 90s, um, where sustainability was a, an idea that was starting to take off, but corporations didn't necessarily have a lot of commitment or resources around it, and I found myself getting a little burnt out. And so I said, well, I don't think corporations are, are really ready to, to make the big shifts that are needed. Um, and so I switched over to social entrepreneurship and sort of never looked back. But what happened eight years ago was I realized that for our work to succeed, to support social entrepreneurs with the intention that they influence the way that we do business, the way that we operate as a society, drawing on these innovations and these incredible role models of leadership, we needed to be in deep dialogue with the traditional private sector. So I basically have been working to create a bridge between Acumen and the corporate world. Um, and so day to day, I spend time thinking about how we can bring corporations into our work. And what's exciting is that I think a lot has changed since the late 90s. And a lot of corporations are really trying to embed principles of inclusive business and sustainability into their core business. Yeah. and also recognize that these kinds of entrepreneurs can be a really important part of that journey, whether it's how they source, how they engage their people in really meaningful ways in the community, um, and also learning new ways of doing business. So yeah. it's been great to see that growing interest and we're there to figure out how do we keep building that bridge in ways that support the social enterprise movement, but also can help transform business. Right. So when I first met you, I thought your role was more traditional fundraising in a nonprofit, bringing in millions of dollars of philanthropic money into the organization, which would then be distributed to high impact entrepreneurs around the world, um, in Africa and everywhere else that you operate. But yeah, and I'm trying to do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you still do some of that more traditional fundraising, but your role has transformed into chief storyteller, into community, creating communities with your donors. So tell us about that piece of your role, like the fundraising yeah. and the storytelling. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is realizing that no one really dreams of just being part of a transaction. Yeah. And so in the same way that I've always felt this deep respect for the entrepreneurs that we support, I have that same excitement about the people that I work with in the corporations that partner with us who are really committed to transformation and impact. And so it's really this idea of partnership that's at the heart of what I do and what I think Acumen as an organization embraces, which is let's imagine that we have the same vision, right? We, we want to, to have a world that works for everyone. We also... I think it's important for us that we work with organizations that really see poverty as this core issue, that if we live in a world that accepts inequality, that accepts that there are people who are you know, treated differently to the degree that they're not treated as fully human, 
that we can't all succeed as a society. So finding that connection and vision is sort of this beautiful moment. But then behind that, there's the hard work. How do you align your strategies? How do you find the right assets to bring together? Um, and, it, and it's kind of never ceases to be interesting and fascinating, um, both that kind of vision and values place, but then the kind of really hard work of saying, but what can we really do together that makes sense? Um, and so, yeah, it is an interesting thing as we talk to different companies, you know, whether it's their vision as a company, their strategy, but also individual personalities, right? We often are asking people to take risks, mm -hmm. um, to push for something new, to sort of use their imagination. And, and a lot of our partners are pushing us as well, really saying, you know, how do you bring these themes into your work that matter to us? Um, so it is, it's a dance and it's this kind of really this exploration for me over the past eight years of what partnership means yeah. um, that's been such an appealing part of the work. Right. So can you give us an example of how Acumen has worked with a partner on something cool to create impact in the communities that you serve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think top of mind for me right now is the work that we've been doing with IKEA Social Entrepreneurship. Um, and I think many people who are IKEA consumers um, have seen that it's a company that really cares about sustainability um, and it shows up in a lot of the, the messaging, but also the products themselves. Um, but one thing that they did that really blew my mind just a few years ago is they initiated a program called IKEA Social Entrepreneurship. And the question they seemed to be asking themselves or how they explained it to me was, you know, how can we use the assets of our business, uh, whether it's, you know, the way that our business works and procurement or just the talent of our team to support the social entrepreneurship movement? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I when I heard that, I'm like, why? Why are you doing this amazing thing? And they said, because we think that the social entrepreneurship movement is going to be a big part of how we solve the world's biggest problems. And yeah. if we can support the movement, you know, then we must. And again, at every level, I was just really deeply impressed. So then we had this opportunity to start partnering with them. And specifically, what we've been doing is supporting an accelerator model mm -hmm. where together we identify early stage businesses. We've been focusing on East Africa. Um, that again, sort of share these common values of building businesses that improve people's lives. Um, and essentially tapping into the resources we have through Acumen Academy, which is sort of the, the leadership and, and training part of our organization yeah. with IKEA and having IKEA personnel, IKEA people, they call them co-workers, um, which says a lot, um, who are working directly with these entrepreneurs. So providing the mentorship and the support to help them take their business idea to the next level of scale. And what's amazing is what happened last year, this was the first time we ran the accelerator, COVID hit right in the middle of this program. And we both had the same thought at the same time, what's gonna happen to these companies right. that are seeing huge disruptions in their business model? All these dreams that we had that they could take these ideas and use them to scale. Suddenly we were like, we don't even know if they'll be here in a few months time. And so IKEA Social Entrepreneurship came forward and said, we need to give them some kind of emergency bridge yeah. to get them through this program and to the other side so that they can actually take these ideas forward. Um, and so again, it spoke to the, the nature of the partnership, just so focused on understanding who these entrepreneurs were and accompanying them through this really difficult period. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about IKEA, if you like talking about them, is um, we, <laughs> we were really interested in this question of how can corporations really engage entrepreneurs in meaningful ways, including in their own supply chains. So we're launching a research project right now with IKEA Social Entrepreneurship 
and this amazing alliance of social entrepreneurs that's under the uh, umbrella of the World Economic Forum to essentially identify entrepreneurs that are really ready to partner with corporations, ready to do business with them, ready to bring their insights, their products into their business model. Um, and that's what we'll be working on this year with them. Um, so we're really excited about both the direct impact we can have on entrepreneurs, but also the learning that we want to do together. Absolutely. And I love this story because we at Soul Career actually placed a client who was an American client who was living in Denmark. She got a job through us at IKEA in Sweden oh, in their sustainability division on their communications team. So you may be working with her, Marianne, right. big up. <laughs> I would love to meet her. Absolutely. She's going to be on the podcast in a few months as well, talking about that journey to IKEA, to working on these amazing initiatives that just fill her with joy. So I'm so glad you coincidentally brought this up as yeah. an example. Connecting the dots. Absolutely. So you mentioned the last piece of what I want to talk about on this, on what the work that Acumen does is the kinds of entrepreneurs that you invest in. So we've talked about the partnerships, the impact, the capital piece, but we haven't really spoken about the entrepreneurs. So give us a flavor, some examples of the countries and the types of businesses you've invested in. Absolutely. Um, so we invest um, in India, Pakistan, um, East and West Africa, Latin America, and also in the US, um, which is a program that's about five years old, where we realized that there was a huge opportunity for us to bring what we'd learned to working in the US on issues of structural poverty and inequality, but also learn from innovations um, in the US. And the kinds of entrepreneurs that we're looking for, you know, what's interesting now is we do work at sort of different stages of an entrepreneur's life. So, you know, again, with an accelerator, We'll be looking for someone who's really early days, really working on their proof of concept. Um, our kind of traditional for us is what we call pioneer investing. Mm -hmm. We're looking for entrepreneurs that have some market traction, but are really trying to get ready for scale. They have to build those internal systems that would allow them to take their business to scale and approach commercial investors. And we've actually launched four separate um, commercial funds. So these are blended capital funds that allow us to work with companies that are at the growth stage and essentially to stay with them on that journey and also, you know, attract other commercial investors by kind of signaling to the market that we see these as really viable growth stage companies. So the entrepreneurs look very different along that spectrum, um, but I would say that they have very, you know, clear things in common, which is a, a commitment to impacting the lives of the poor. More and more, one of the things we've been asking ourselves is sort of in terms of the profile of the entrepreneur, we want to find entrepreneurs that reflect the diversity of issues and communities that they're serving. And in some areas we've seen like in access to energy, which is a really big area of focus for us, there were a lot of non-local entrepreneurs who had particularly moved to places like West Africa or East Africa to build these amazing companies that are bringing access to solar energy to remote rural communities. And so we asked ourselves, how do we really intentionally support investment in local entrepreneurs? really build out that ecosystem of entrepreneurs that maybe didn't go to MIT or Stanford, but really are going to be, we think, the foundation of the energy sector in the future. So now we're thinking about how do we structure the ways that we invest, the ways that we source entrepreneurs and support them to make that community more inclusive. Um, but in general, what we'll see when we look at our entrepreneurs is um, a range of profiles, um, more and more women entrepreneurs founding companies and, and showing up on our radar, which is exciting to us. Um, and also sometimes coming at it from different lenses. You know, we have one entrepreneur in Kenya who runs a clean cook stove company, 
who is really just a, a deeply committed environmentalist. He wanted to stop the burning and destruction of forests in Africa. And so he started a, a cook stove company. What he's doing today is he's empowering hundreds of thousands of women with a cooking technology that reduces labor, that reduces health impacts, that reduces expense, um, and makes their lives easier and better, and often helps improve relationships between women and men, because mm -hmm. men are interested in this sort of new technology, and the woman will say, great, why don't you come cook with me? <laughs> you can learn all about it. Mm -hmm. So interesting to see where people's passion comes from. Um, some come from a more commercial orientation, and some come from a very social impact orientation, but the ones that we support are the ones where it kind of meets in the middle and they have this shared commitment to impacting the lives of the poor and creating a scalable business. Beautiful. And that's the theme of this episode, mission-driven careers, impact-driven yeah. careers. So I'm really glad to, to hear from someone who's spent a lot of her life in the impact and mission-driven space. In fact, I just looked at your LinkedIn profile. You've been at Acumen for 17 years. Okay. which is unheard of in today's world. Like two years at a company is like considered long right now. So how did you start out at Acumen and how did you end up staying there for so long? Yeah, um, so I joined Acumen coming right out of business school. Um, and as I mentioned, um, I was really fascinated when I was at business school with this question of how do you use the tools of business to drive social impact? That's kind of what I went in there to learn. Um, I had worked at Ashoka before business school, and I felt that Ashoka was so amazing at you know, focusing on the, the entrepreneurial spirit of a social entrepreneur um, and their passion for, for change. But there wasn't as much emphasis on that question of scale. How do you take these ideas to the next level and how do you use business as a, as a driver for that? So that was the question I went into business school with. And when I learned about Acumen coming out of it, it just seemed to answer that question. Um, it was just, you know, if you can build a scalable business that solves one of the world's biggest problems, you just, you have to try to solve that puzzle. Um, so I joined as the water portfolio manager, which was really ironic because I knew almost nothing about investing and almost nothing about the water sector. And then throw into that, I was starting my work in India and Bangladesh, neither of which I had ever visited. Um, so it was a wonderful chance to dive into the deep end. And I think just a great lesson for me, which was, to sometimes be willing to kind of step into the unknown and trust that you'll kind of figure it out on your way. And of course, huge mentorship and support that allowed me to survive that, that period. I was kind of every time my boss invited me into his office for a catch up, I was like basically waiting to hear that I'd been fired. Oh, no. um, so a little bit stressful, but um, what was interesting in that was really getting that firsthand view of what was the experience of these entrepreneurs how were they trying to kind of navigate the space between access to safe drinking water and building a viable business? Um, and that I think has stayed with me, just that proximity that I had to these different business models. I think for me as Acumen was growing, one of the reasons I've stayed at Acumen so long is I've been able to be a part of, and in some places a driver of the evolution of this very dynamic organization. So I've had you know very distinct jobs, each of which have had a steep learning curve and that just means that it's sort of never dull. Um, and in some ways the work is never done. So I transitioned from doing the portfolio work into our communications work at a time when Acumen realized that our impact on the world may not be just the direct impact of our companies and the people they serve, but the ideas that we wanted to get out into the world, the messages that we wanted to share. 
and that our success and our sustainability depended on our ability to tell the story. So I led communications at Acumen for six years. Um, again, mostly it felt like just a steep learning curve. And I remember uh, a colleague from the Ford Foundation reached out to me to want to have coffee. And I was like, wow, the head of communications for the Ford Foundation wants to meet. I don't know why. But when we met, I asked him and he said, well, we sort of have the same job. And I'm like, oh, I'm a communications professional. <laughs> it had never really occurred to me because it was it was a part of my journey, but I didn't really identify that way. Um, and the lesson there was that in some ways, the impact of the work I was doing was more important than the title. So finding a way to have impact was you know, part of that journey. I left the comms team after six years to initiate this partnerships work. Um, but what I find is that I use those skills almost every day. And so I've advised others that I know that are thinking of a transition Think about how you bring everything with you. Um, even if it seems like you're jumping into something new, bring those skills, bring those lessons with you um, so that you're building rather than just pivoting and, and taking detours. Exactly. That's great advice. And and in fact, the themes that I'm hearing you when you're telling your story about how you stayed at Acumen that long, it's um, change, constant change, constant growth, constant learning, great mentorship and impact and feeling that you're really changing people's lives through your work. And those are very, very similar themes for me, staying at the Branson Center for seven years. I never thought I would be with one organization for seven years. It's like mind blowing. Before the Branson Center, I actually changed jobs every year. <laughs> I also, I remember when I was applying to business school and one of the Q&A questions was, what if you've had more than two jobs since college? And I was like, I've had like eight. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes to our personality type. So I want to take a little detour there because I'm an ENFP, you're an ENFJ. So my theory, and I think this plays out um, in all the clients that I've seen that have been in the nonprofit impact space, everyone is an F a feeler, a communicator, a connector, needing to impact the lives of others. And for me as a P, jumping around, jumping into very dynamic environments that are constantly changing and helping to navigate that change, navigate the chaos, the exciting chaos is something that a lot of P's love, whereas J's bring structure. They bring the path, they, they come in and they kind of guide how the organization is gonna evolve over time. So I yeah. think really interesting that we have that it is interesting and actually when when i was thinking about this so i'm kind of on the cusp of ah. p and j and i sort of vaguely remembered that but i didn't really know what it means and so what you're describing actually really resonates because what i found working in acumen and one of the reasons that i have felt like i can continue to stay and grow there is that there's this really great dynamic tension within acumen's culture between this innovation and entrepreneurship and this um, real value and rigor and accountability. Mm -hmm. And so within our teams, we have both types. We have people that are incredibly creative and entrepreneurial. They don't really love to be constrained. They don't love bureaucracy, um, but we have this other sort of really important part of our work, which is accountability, the focus on metrics, the focus on having best in class accounting. You know, We have offices and functions and different kinds of investing that we work and that rigor and accountability has allowed us to build an organization with integrity. And so I love both, but I also see those tensions and navigating that. Um, and so I think it is an interesting temperament thing. And we've looked at that as well at Acumen. What are our temperaments and how do we respect the diversity of temperaments and the strength that that gives our organization 
rather than trying to push towards a sort of homogenous view where everybody can look around and be like, thank goodness, we all think the same way. Right. Um, because I don't think we'd end up with the same results. Absolutely not. Diversity of approach, of a perspective, of thoughts are what gives us the best outcomes for sure. And you know, what's really funny about what you said is that I'm, I've been an ENFP my entire life, but after becoming CEO of the Branson Center and having to be <laughs> very structured, I'm now flipping to an ENFJ, which yeah. is really funny. Yeah. yeah. So well, and I also just something that you made me think of is that idea of staying somewhere for a longer period of time. I mean, obviously now I, I feel like my identity and acumen's like they kind of blend. Um, but what happens when you stay somewhere for a long time is that it's almost like a relationship that you're forced to evolve, right? You find those uncomfortable moments and you can say, this is just doesn't work for me anymore. Mm. Or you can also push through and say, how do I need to transform to make this work? Or how do I challenge my organization to evolve so that I can continue my journey here? And I think that is what comes with longevity. Um, but it is, it's a different task in a way in building your career than sort of finding that fit that works for you um, and staying there until it doesn't. Absolutely. And that's what I like to call making your current career your sole career, because yeah. it may be your sole career when you just start and then it evolves and you evolve and you change and then you have to make it work for you and navigate and create and design the role within the organization if you want to stay there that works for you. It doesn't always have to be a transition out into another organization. You yeah. can make your current career your sole career. So I want point to go back to the beginning of who you are and how you even were drawn to this space. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What business school did you go to? You keep mentioning it. I don't know which one it is, but I would like for you to say so. Yeah, I, I won't be coy. I went to a business school in California. No, I was very lucky to go to Stanford, yeah. um, but I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, so kind of arbitrarily, I was born in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is not far from where I live now. Um, but my family only stayed there for a year because my dad was on his own journey. He's a Stanford alum and he had gone into consulting as so many do. So he was traveling all over the globe and my parents were these just nomadic wanderers. They'd lived in Italy, in uh, the Netherlands and had moved to New York um, for his, his latest job. So I was born there. But at that point, he also, I think, realized for himself and my dad has been a, an incredible mentor and role model for me that that lifestyle just wasn't working for him. And so he decided to become an entrepreneur, to move back home to Venezuela where he was born. So he's a Venezuelan um, and really start thinking about his entrepreneurial journey. Um, the reality is that, you know, Venezuela at that time um, was, and probably I can say still is just such a complex story uh, yeah. in terms of just the beauty of the country, the natural resources, um, the richness of the culture. Uh, but also has had its share of ups and downs politically. Um, and it was it was a bit of a struggle, I think, for our family to figure out how to make it work. Uh, but for me as a child, you know, between the ages of one and five, when we left, I did have some memories that really stayed with me. And what I observed was that kind of, we lived in this uh, elite bubble, right? So we would go to the country club on the weekend and swim in the pool and it was lovely. And then sometimes we would leave Caracas and we would go out and take adventures in our VW van and I would see a very different world. Um, people's skin color was different and some of the children weren't wearing shoes. And this is so in the mind of a child, it was just puzzling to me that there was such a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I always say that I think if I'd stayed, I might have tried to find a way to reconcile that. 
and sort of live with that. But I left uh, at five and I moved to Santa Cruz, California, mm -hmm. which is this crazy liberal bastion. Um, in some places, it feels like it's kind of stood still since like 1967, um, <laughs> but a beautiful place to grow up. And I think instilled in me these very idealistic values, right? To really care about the environment, to care about social justice and equality, um, to just really imagine a world that was different. So in my mind, I think putting those things together remembering my experience in Venezuela, which I did end up studying. I started doing more research into what were the policies and what was happening in Venezuela? What had I actually seen to try to make some sense of it? But within that kind of very liberal West Coast idealistic framework that I grew up with. Um, so by the time I got to college, I think I already had a little bit of that bent mm -hmm. of kind of asking questions. Why are things the way they are and, and can't we do better? Um, and I remember uh, a sort of comparative economics class that I took. And in it, we studied um, sort of development, traditional development that had started after World War II. And I just remember getting really infuriated, um, learning about sort of traditional development as it had evolved in a sense to create markets and access to raw materials for the, the sort of developed world in a way that I found to be quite exploitive and at best inefficient because it had actually exacerbated some problems of poverty and created a lot of dependence and debt. So one of my big ahas in college was I am so mad about this. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff I'd gotten mad about in my time. I was mad about whales. I was mad about redwoods. But this one just went really deep because mm -hmm. it felt like a betrayal that our Western institutions had claimed that they wanted to create a more equal, just world, but they had actually simply created a marketplace that worked for their own development. Right. And I thought, I think I'm going to be mad about this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe I should think about a career path that helps me go deeper into understanding this and maybe even trying to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a takeaway and something I shared with a friend who has now become a, a global public health icon, um, which is, you know, it's great to be driven by your passion and your enthusiasm, but sometimes you also have to connect with those darker feelings and acknowledging those places that you just aren't okay with and not to reconcile it and not to convince yourself that it is what it is, but actually to say, no, we can do better. Um, and that was the beginning for me. So by the time I graduated from college, I was already sort of committed to uh, a sort of impact career. Um, and uh, and the rest sort of is history. I bounced around a lot, but but I never really looked back. And I, and I call that um, crossing the threshold where you say, my career will be about impact. Yeah. Whatever that means to you, right? And I always advise people, I'm like, you can wait and you can get to that moment at all different times in your career. But I always say the sooner the better, because sometimes it does involve that sort of navigating your path, making trade-offs, figuring out what works for you, balancing your financial goals with your impact goals. And I think it's better to start that journey earlier. Um, although I've seen amazing things around second career mm -hmm. where people make that decision later in their careers but bring so much talent and expertise to that space. So it's always a good time, um, but never too soon. I had no idea that you were Venezuelan. <laughs> <laughs> I just learned yeah. something about you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I used to I used to brag about it all the time because you can see me sort of, you know, well-intentioned white girl. Um, <laughs> I think I was carrying that around with a bit of discomfort and so really wanted people to know that I was actually Venezuelan mm -hmm. uh, but the truth is I I'm an American citizen I grew up in California um, and it's a part of my story but I don't 
think I can claim any real lived experience um, of, of being Venezuelan. Well, but I do love the food. <laughs> no, your story is just so similar to mine because I grew up in Jamaica from one to 17 or zero to 17, zero to 18. And I remember doing an economics class for the first time and learning about supply and demand and poverty and being like, why don't we use this knowledge to solve all the issues that I see when I drive out of the school compound onto the street? Right. And that stayed with me and which is why I studied economics when I went to the University of Chicago. I wanted to be the Minister of Finance for mm. Jamaica. And that's really what led me down this path of impact careers, because I thought I tried, I tested the water with corporate America at Bain in New York. And I was like, it's not enough impact on people's lives for me. And I had to find a way through a nonprofit organization that invested in entrepreneurs, very similar to you. I had to find my way to bridge my business and economics background. You went to Stanford Business School. I went to Harvard Business School. So we have the business pedigree, but we also want to change people's lives. And we both found organizations that helped us to do that. Yeah, well, it's no question that we, we clicked um, and just hearing your story and also the way that you had kind of fearlessly moved into this space, but then been recognized as this talent that could really lead the organization. And so when we spoke and you were saying, okay, this is the opportunity I have, I thought, you know, what a gift for you to actually step into that leadership role um, and, and not have to sort of pay dues and wait, but to jump right into building an organization um, that I think has had a huge impact in Jamaica. So I think it's that combination of kind of the the upbringing and then the skills, but at the end of the day, you have to make choices right. about, you know, where are you going to put your time and effort and what risks are you going to take? And that can make all the difference, I think, in terms of maximizing your impact as an individual. Absolutely. And, you know, it was the most challenging um, position that I've ever held. You know that in deep detail, but you also know it was the, also the most rewarding path for me as well. I learned so much about running an organization. I learned so much about myself as a leader um, and I wouldn't have changed it for the world. So I want to ask you, Yasmina, what advice do you have for people who are looking at getting into the impact space, nonprofits, NGOs, philanthropic communities? How can someone enter that space? Three tips. Three tips. So the first one is, um, and I love that you didn't prepare me with this question, so I really just got to go for it. Um, so one is advice I've given many people, which is to do an internal reflection first, yeah. because you hear a lot of people say, I'm here, I want to make a difference. But if you can't connect it to your own story, your own values, you know, there's always something there. So you want to connect really deeply with why this is important to you, because like with anything that's important, there'll be bumps along the way and you'll need that internal compass. So for folks who don't really know why they care, but they do, I'm like, take the time go on a, a long hike or something, but just don't, don't stay at a superficial level um, because this is, a, this is a real life journey. Um, the second piece is choose the organizations that reflect your values um, rather than the title, rather than the job description. Yeah. And that's because for me, when I started at Ashoka, I was working on their, um, their staff recruiting team. They needed a staff recruiting system and I knew how to build systems. And I said, look, this is not my destiny. I'm not gonna be a recruiter, um, but this is the organization that I need to be at. And within about a half a year, I was the associate director for their environmental program, which was the job that I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just kind of show up and do what's needed 
Um, and then I guess the third one is to be, it's sort of connected to the first, but to be really honest with yourself about where you shine. So when you're thinking about, again, moving into the nonprofit space, what are the skills that you bring? Where do you really excel? Um, so that you can kind of build on that. Because the thing about the nonprofit world is it needs everyone and everything. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing to think about is you can have a huge impact working at a nonprofit, but you can also have a huge impact working in government or working in a corporation. And every space now, there's this interest in breaking down barriers. Nice. So where, again, do you feel like you can go the furthest um, to have that impact? And then once you're there, how do you start to connect the dots across sectors um, rather than sort of convincing yourself that you need to be, you know, working in a nonprofit if you want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I love that. So for you personally, Yasmina, and this is how we'll close, like you've been in your soul career for 17, almost 18 years now. So when you think about what happens next, where do you go from here? What does oh that goodness. look like? <laughs> um, well, I'll be really honest. Um, you know, I have two kids. Um, that I adore, a nine-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy. And of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think it's hard sometimes to look beyond kind of getting back to some space of normalcy. Yeah. Um, but it's been, for me, really powerful to recognize that the mental health and the, and the physical health of my family is what's sort of top of mind for me. But at the same time, I wanna stay really connected to my own journey and frankly, the journeys of others. So in the long run, I know that I'm going to continue to want to push myself and learn and stretch and find new ways to, to lead and add value. So I'm kind of teeing that up in two ways. One is being connected to my mentees and really showing up for people that are at different stages of this journey uh, because it's, it really nourishes me and it gives me this reminder of what it's like to be building and growing. Um, and so that's been a commitment that I've made to, to support, um, support people who are kind of finding their way, and particularly women of color, because at the end of the day, I personally think that that's, that's where we need to go is having a world with leadership that reflects um, a much more diverse community. Um, and then on the flip side, also recognizing that I need mentorship. I want to be inspired by women who are at different stages of their career and have maybe navigated these things before. So I recently joined a group called Chief, mm -hmm. which is for you know executive women who are you know really thinking about how to combine impact and leadership um, across all sectors. So being exposed to different women who are pushing themselves and leading organizations. And I think that's what's gonna help me figure out that sort of, what do I look like in my next iteration? But um, you know, honestly, I think there's something about being in the moment, um, being really committed to the people that I think count on me today. I have an amazing team at Acumen um, and just feeling every day like I can be useful and I can learn something new. Amazing. I love that so much. And that's what we're all learning now during the pandemic, how to be still, right? So much stillness compared to you traveled so much pre-pandemic. Yeah, my, my husband will ha be happy to hear you acknowledge that. <laughs> right? So just that stillness. I was very uncomfortable with it at first. As extroverts, especially, we want to get out there and connect. Yeah. And so it was really hard for me to be just still and by myself a lot. And now I've created so much from that space of stillness. So I'm very grateful for, for the pandemic for holding me in place so that I could reflect on my own life and create again, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, well, life is cyclical and life is everything. So things are going to change and then we'll find ourselves 
moving around a lot again. And um, I think the key is to kind of hold on to that stillness um, and that insight that comes from change um, and not just kind of putting our heads down and putting our nose to the grindstone because life is too short. And, you know, there's this isn't the rehearsal. This is the real thing. And so I think it's just being able to keep that presence of mind. Exactly. That's beautiful. So with that, thank you so much for joining us, Yasmina. You are just a real blessing that came into my life. I'm so happy I got to share you with the Soul Career Podcast audience. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Cassandra. And you're exactly the same thing to me. So this was just a joy. Great to see you. Awesome. Bye. Bye, Cassandra. If you love this episode, remember to hit subscribe and leave us a review. And if you're a professional, executive, or entrepreneur that's interested in taking one of our coaching programs, head on over to soulcareer.com and sign up for a free consultation. We would love to hear from you.